0: One of my favorite quotes from famed British author of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, is from one of his sermons entitled The Weight of Glory, where he preached, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis then illustrates the reality of this in book seven of the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, if you didn't remember, there are seven books in the whole series of the Chronicles of Narnia. And if it's been a while since you read that to your kids or to your grandkids, I would say read it for yourself. It is a joy to discover, again portrayed in such a vivid uh, and imaginative way from creation to redemption. In book seven, we find a group of dwarfs. The dwarfs think that they are in a dark stable, eating, smelling, and experiencing what one would find in a stable. But the reality is, Aslan has come on the scene and set before them a feast worthy of kings. But they are so blinded by their fear of being taken in that they cannot see the truth right before them. You see, said Aslan, again, remember, Aslan represents Christ. They will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison. And so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Far too often, we are just like these dwarfs. Jesus, the truth, is standing right before us. But how many of us are blinded as we feast on our mud pies of power and position with a side of control? How many of us are blinded by the swill of success and the sweet desserts that focus on me, myself, and I? In many ways, this is what the Apostle Paul is helping us to see through the book of Philippians. He is helping us to see that what we think we are eating is the best and only option. In reality, what we are feeding ourselves are really mud pies. And the real feast is with Jesus. So the question becomes, will we stay content with the mud pies we are eating? Or will we allow the truth that is Jesus enable us to let go of our mud pies And join the feast that only Jesus offers through living a life worthy that flows from his life through ours. The life you and I were actually created to live. The last few weeks from Pastor Terabath and Pastor Dan, we've heard how the Apostle Paul has been laying out Jesus so beautifully before us. From this feast we've had so far, what do you see What did you taste when Pastor Terabeth said week one as she shared from the Apostle Paul in chapter one of Philippians? And this is my prayer, Paul writes in verse nine, that that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and what is pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And Pastor Tara went on to summarize, Jesus is foundational to living your best life. Or last week with Pastor Dan, what did you see and feel when you heard our understanding, as Pastor Dan shared, our understanding of what constitutes our best life undergoes a transformation, an upgrade, a conversion. This, in essence, is the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom with us. This is the reorientation of our lives that Paul is urging the Philippians forward in and what he means by conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And then Pastor Dan reminded us that the rest of the letter of Philippians is then unpacking of what this life looks like in the everyday moments of our life. So as we continue to unpack what this looks like in the everyday moments of our life, I encourage you to open up your Bibles. You can use the Pew Bibles in front of you to Philippians 2. If you are using the Pew Bibles, it's page 1824. Or pull up your favorite Bible app. And here's what we find as we begin. Oh, and before I begin, may I remind us, where is Paul writing this letter from? Prison, right, he's in jail. And for me, that's always so helpful to remind myself and important because when I remind myself where Paul is writing from, it's inspirational. And it provides this proving of his words, of veracity and depth, that he's just not telling us something, he's not living himself. He's absolutely living this out first as a proving of saying, this is how this life looks. Look at me, this is what I'm doing. And what we also will see today through Paul, as we will see throughout the book of Philippians, is that although we can't control our circumstances, we can control our response. Let's begin with verse 12 in chapter 2. Paul writes, therefore, therefore. Now, as any good pastor would tell you, I am bound by pastoral law to stop right there. Right, It's a thing, and I believe Pastor Dan did this last week. Uh, Great minds think alike. And to remind you of the little Bible study uh, help, right? You know what that is? You know where I'm going with this, right? When you see the word therefore, you guys are good. You've been listening. When you see the word therefore, you ask, what is therefore there for? So Paul, in this case, we see that Paul is transitioning from everything he shared to this point. Specifically, what was shared last week by Pastor Dan. The items at the beginning of chapter two, where Paul portrayed the humble beauty of Jesus. And how Jesus was in the very nature God. But Jesus became a servant to human beings. He hugged lepers. He stooped to play with children. He went to parties with those kind of people. He washed the feet of the people who would reject him and betray him and literally abandon him. And then to really turn things upside down or perhaps better put, to make things truly right, Jesus humbled himself all the way to death, to death on the cross, taking upon our sin upon him to liberate us and free us so that we truly can live the lives we've been meant to have. So, with those things still stirring and shaping our hearts and minds, Paul says to us, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's important not to misunderstand Paul's point here. Notice Paul isn't saying, nor would he say, hey, Philippians, um, pony up. You better earn this salvation, right? It's on you. Paul would never say that because nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told we earn our salvation. Jesus earned our salvation. Paul emphasizes that in Ephesians 2, where he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done, so none of us can boast about it. So what is Paul meaning here? Work out your salvation does not mean working for salvation but making visible your salvation in the flow of your life. I'm not involved in the earning, but that doesn't mean I do not exert effort in partnering with God in my transformation. There's a responsibility I do have to offer my heart, offer my life to Jesus to transform. So we are justified, the big theological word. We are set right, justified, positionally through Jesus. But then practically, we are still involved in the slog of everyday life as we know. Due to this body, due to the limitations of our current reality. Then this is where sanctification kicks in. Now, now stay with me here. Don't zone out. This is good meaty stuff we're feasting on, folks. Put down those mud pies and pay attention because today you're not going to need lunch. Sanctification is then the process of becoming more like Jesus in the everyday moments of your life. This is where the new life you have been gifted by God goes into effect because you're partnering with God to make that happen, to enable that to become reality for you here and now, that's sanctification. Paul encourages us to do this with fear and trembling. Now fear and trembling is the biblical way of saying, do this with the sacred focus and intentionality it deserves. This isn't gonna happen by accident. It's like going to the gym. You can have access to the gym, but there's a big difference between having access to a gym and actually going and working out at the gym, right? Believe me, I paid my fat tax for far too long. There's a difference between fathering a child and being a dad. Dare I say, there's a difference between coming to church and being the church. There's a difference between calling yourself a mature Christian and living as a follower of Jesus. And it's interesting to note that there are multiple places throughout the New Testament that we hear similar ideas. In fact, there are eight times, over eight times, we're told, make every effort. Jesus tells us through Luke, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Paul says in Romans, "Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. Here, the responsibility. Here, the partnering with God in this. Here, choosing a certain direction in my life. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. But Eric, you don't know them. Make every effort to keep the unity. But Eric, every, make every effort to keep." The unity in the spirit, we may not control our circumstances, but we can't control our response. Peter, make every effort to confirm your calling and election sure. To show the salvation that you say you believe in, let's see it. Make every effort. In another way, this is reflective of what Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, and I love the way the message renders this passage. This is Jesus speaking here. These words I speak to you, Jesus tells us, are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life upon. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house because it was fixed on the rock. However, Jesus goes on and reminds us, but if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built this house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. Knowing and seeing the responsibility we have encourages us to embrace the reality that we can't control our circumstances, but we can control our response. And I know what some of you might be thinking and saying, but Eric, come on. That's Jesus, that's Paul, that's Peter, that's the writers of scriptures. That's not me. Now you know what that sounds like, dare I say? That sounds like the dwarfs who are too content, too focused on their mud pies that they rather stay the way things are than let them go and enter into this life that we are invited to by Jesus himself. Our best life our true life. However, in God's grace, He knows us. He knows me. He knows you. He knows us and hears us all too well. And that's why we are not left to our own devices. Because you're right. If left to ourselves, if simply to ourselves, it's too much, it's too daunting. We will fail every single time. But realize that God loves us, and he never abandons us. In fact, Paul shows that right here. And notice this crazy, surprising thing Paul tells us in verse 13, as he continues. Work out your salvation, notice verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let that sink in. Work out your salvation, your responsibility, For when you do that, when you turn towards God, make that choice, no matter what's going on, when you do that, it is God who's working in you and through you to do that. Now for me, I often think of the imagery of us doing our part and God doing his part as this beautiful dance together. And when I do, I think of my first dance with my daughter when she was little, and she and I were at this dance, it was a father-daughter dance at her school. And when I was first dancing with my daughter, we were tripping something fierce over each other's feet. Right? I know I may look like a good dancer, but I'm not. Okay, just, just laying that out there, all right? Hope I can share that this morning. So at one point in that evening, what did I tell my daughter? Not only did I say, Maya, let me let daddy lead. You can trust me. I love you. I want the best for you. I want us to look good out here. Let me lead. But more than that, I also said, Maya, put your feet on daddy's feet. So she, with a big smile, stepped on my feet. And then we graced each other around that dance floor. And it's one of my most beautiful memories I have with my daughter. She's looking up at me with this huge smile and bright eyes. Folks, this is what God is inviting us to do. This is the beauty of a life lived worthy. He's going, Haskins, put your feet on my feet. Choose to do that and let me guide you. And we'll do a dance you never even thought of. So yes, now the question becomes, how does this happen? It happens through actively engaging in spiritual practices, not as an end in themselves. I don't go to Bible study because I like the people there. Hopefully you like the people there, but that's not why you go. You don't go to Bible study to do good on Bible trivia when it comes up uh, on Jeopardy when you watch the reruns. You go to Bible study and are in community with one another Because it's a means to an end. It's a means to knowing the heart of Jesus, to allowing yourself to step on God's feet so he can guide and direct and dance with you. That's why every week around here we say pray, be in community, read the scriptures for yourself, just not on Sunday morning, but every day during the week, hopefully. Paul now shifts his focus here and shares with us what can impede us from working on our salvation and living in the flow of God's grace within us. It might come a little startling, in fact, because he says all this stuff, and then he just says, verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Bam. And you're like, "Whoa, okay. Wow. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, there's a story of a, a monk who joined a monastery, and took a vow of silence where he could speak only once a year. And so, after his first year, he goes before a superior, and a superior says, You have anything to say? And the monk replied, Food bad. Another year, the monk passes by again, and he goes again, opportunity to voice, uh, to share something with his superior. And this time, his superior is like, You have anything to say this year? We had a great conversation last year. What do you have to share this year? Bed hard. Well, the third year goes by and the monk returns to his superior's office. And this time, the monk replies, I quit. And his superior says, it's no surprise. Does surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain since you've got here. (laughs) But really, we know how deflating it is to be with someone who constantly grumbles and complains. What it does to your spirit, what it does for the community, what it does for morale. Think about it. It's so spiritually damaging that here in the midst of this letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, do everything without grumbling and arguing. How do you live this life well? You don't grumble, you don't argue with one another because that's going to cut this life off that we've been describing so beautifully. Now, hold that thought, because we're going to take a tangent here. But it's going to be one that's going to hopefully help us understand some things of how deep Paul is going with this. Now, I believe that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the writers of the Scriptures are brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. And this image I'm about to show you on the screen is an example of their brilliance. And what you are seeing, (coughs) excuse me, on the screen is a visual image of their brilliance. And what this is are all the hyperlinked passages of the Bible. So all those rainbows, all those lines is when one passage links itself in some way to another passage in the Scriptures. So you see that rainbow, those lines in the bottom, the deeper those lines on the bottom, the white lines, the more times that particular passage is referenced from somewhere else in the scriptures. And what this means for us is that as we read the Bible, the biblical authors want us to say, hey, that sounds familiar. There, there's something there. I've heard this before in my reading. And, and then they want you to go in that place and say, oh yeah, this is, this is the exact wording, right? What am I supposed to pick up from this story because it's hyperlinked to the one I was reading over here? This is what Paul is doing here. Because what, what is happening here, the term translated complaining occurs rarely in the New Testament. Rarely. In fact, the word that's translated complaining here, this is the only appearance in Paul's letters. But where it does occur is all over the Greek translation of the Bible that the the Philippian people would have, describing Israel's desert wanderings. So when Israel was in the desert, they were all happy and go lucky, right? They loved it. No, but what Paul is doing is saying, hey, Remember the grumbling and complaining? And they go, wait a minute, that that wording sounds very familiar. Grumbling and complaining in the Bible. Bam. The desert wanderings. And when you go back there, here's what you find. Exodus 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You are not grumbling against us, Aaron and Moses, but against the Lord, they're told. Exodus 17, but the people were thirsty for water. And there they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt uh, and, make us, and make us and our children, our livestock, die of thirst? We could have just stayed there. We should have stayed back there. Numbers 11, Now the people were complaining once again about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, let's just say God wasn't too pleased. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Now again, remember, what do they have every morning? Miraculously, manna. God provided because of the grumbling. I'll give it to you. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna that just miraculously shows up every morning. Now, again, think of that image I showed you about the hyperlinks. Because typically, when you see those connections through words and phrases like this, it's on purpose. The biblical authors, again, want you to connect to those stories, they want you to draw from those stories those lessons. So, in this case, what could those lessons be? Perhaps it's when we are in church and complaining, it's a sign that our focus and reality of what we are desiring is off base. In the same way, when the ancient Israelites began longing to go back to Egypt, I mean, think of how off base that was. God rescues them in an amazingly miraculous, mind-numbing way. And they go, ah, we'd rather go back. We aren't really living our best lives at that point, are we? Or worse, perhaps just as the Israelites when they complained they were treating God's grace and goodness and provisions, when they complained they were treating all that with contempt, with not thanks, with no thanks and with lack of gratitude. And let's bring this home to us. It's a hard one, but I think it applies The Lord led us into a wilderness of a two-year worldwide pandemic. Do we trust and turn towards? Or do we take take on an attitude of Jesus? Or how much have we been grumbling? We come to church and Haskins is preaching. Do we take on the attitude of Jesus? Or are we okay with it? I know it's not really helpful to say don't grumble and complain, but you can train yourself to do differently. Because some of us, that is a habit. It's a habit we've developed, unfortunately. But folks, I remind us again, we can't control our circumstances, but we can choose a response. So if you are a grumbler and complainer, and I think we all are at some point, right? Right? There are a few spiritual practices I could offer, but for the sake of time, I offer you one. And I would encourage you to start a gratitude journal. A gratitude journal. Now, at this point, I did want to say, which here I am going to say it anyway. I want to go back to what my mom told me when I was little. All our moms told us this when we were little. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. How many of us need that advice? Just say it. Outside of that, I encourage you literally to start a gratitude journal. Some of us are in the habit of grumbling, and all we do is look for problems and voice them. What if we flip that on its head by God's grace and God's empowerment as we work out our salvation and looked for things to praise and things to compliment and things to honor and things to celebrate? And things as we, wo- we left our homes this morning. What a beautiful day, God. Thank you for this day. Not, oh, my husband didn't cut the grass yesterday like I told him. A friend of mine does this every day. She actually posts it on Facebook every day and she calls it the goodness of her day. And I love seeing her post come through and I read it. She has three or four things every day that she posts. It's one way to do it. Keep a notebook. Keep it by your Bible or a journal. Paul gives us the result then of living a life like this. When we stop grumbling and complaining and we live in the flow and work out our salvation so that, verse 15, you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You see, this is all part of working out our salvation. When we embrace that we can't control our circumstances, but we can choose our response we truly begin to live our best life, a life worthy, a life that shines with the light of Jesus himself. And folks, as followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is your calling, this is your invitation, this is your honor and responsibility. Jesus himself states, John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in Matthew 5, you, Jesus is telling us, you, you are the light of the world, a, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hitting. So shine, folks. Shine unhindered. When you stop the arguing and complaining and grumbling, you live your best life now and are living as lights that have been called and created to be. So I close today. I do so. Two assignments for you. Homework, Haskins? Yeah, homework. Work out your salvation, folks. The first assignment is sometime this week, go back to the start of Philippians. Start at chapter 1, verse 1, and read to the end of chapter 2. So read the first two chapters of Philippians. And in so doing, near the end of chapter 2, you're going to come across two examples that Paul gives us. Uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what I want you to do is what Paul is intending for us to do. Look at their lives as he describes them. And ask yourself, how is the example of Timothy's life and Epaphroditus' life an example of everything Paul shared to this point? So, a little Bible study homework. Do that. The second thing When you came in, you should have received this card. Take this card out now. Now, for those of you who might know me a little better or follow me on social media, you know that I dabble with photography. And from all the photos I take over the course of a year, and believe me, it's a lot of photos I take. I select one that represents uh, the stirring in my soul and the time, and I share it as my photo of the year. So with that in mind, may I tell the story of this. This is my photo of the year from last year. I'd like to end and close our time by sharing this story with you of why I've chosen this one as a photo of the year. So as you hold it in your hand, look at it just here for a moment. And may I invite you to take a few moments and reflect on the photo. What do you notice? How does it make you feel? Where does it take you? I chose this photo as my photo of the year because I thought uh, it brought to my soul a formational point in perspective. I've needed throughout what I describe as the banal mundaneness of 2021. I came across this leaf in the flow of my ordinary life, simply walking to the train for a day of art in the city with my wife, Linda. The rain, the stone textured sidewalk, all adds to the organic beauty and water drop filled highlights of a fallen leaf in the midst of changing seasons. It struck me because just as easily I could have missed it, but we were enjoying each other's company, chatting on the way to the train, so we were walking at a slower pace. We could have missed it grumbling about the rain, but the beauty of the leaf is highlighted through the many magnifying glasses of water droplets on the leaf's surface. We could have missed it as we bemoaned the passing of another year, cursing the approaching winter, but the soft, warm yellow against the harsh realism of the sidewalk caught my eye and drew me to be present to the beauty of this moment. The Apostle Paul puts this formational practice of focusing on the good and the beauty in the midst of the banal and mundane this way. Summing it up, Paul writes in Philippians 4, I say to you, you'll do your best by filling your minds and meditating on things true and noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise and not things to curse. To some degree, I believe this is the strength of his message to the Philippians. Paul challenges us to slow down, to notice the type of life that we are living, to ask hard questions of this life, and to see how God uses the mundane, even painful elements of our life to highlight his grace and love, enabling us to live our best lives here and now, in Jesus. And may this picture remind you to slow down in the mundane, to slow down in the painful. So your soul can be filled by the beauty that is all around. As you are present to the moments and the people God has graced your lives with. For even though we can't control our circumstances, we can choose our response. And in so doing, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your beauty and your invitation to us to join you in this life, to live out our salvation, to dance with you, Lord, may we take that up. May we take that up in one way, simply by stopping, complaining, and arguing amongst each other. And in so doing, may we shine like the lights you are enabling us to become. We thank you and we love you. Amen.